you guys remember uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman? You've seen probably movies with uh, Hoffman in it. Hoffman was one of the great uh, directors, producers, actors here in America over the past uh, couple decades. Earlier part of this year, in February of this year, he, he was found dead at age 46 in his New York City apartment from, from a drug overdose, tragically. And, and yet in this, just uh, about 11 months prior to his death, he, he echoes how, how many of us have felt when he, he, he says this line, I've thought a lot about happiness in my life lately and gotten nowhere. You know, kind of a tragic statement. But he did speak to situations. Memory said, you know, I mean, there are times, there's like times with my kids, you know, there's moments where I feel happiness, like I get a sense of it. I kind of feel like I'm getting there, like I'm experiencing it, but then I don't know why. And what he means by I don't know why is he's saying, I don't, I don't really know specifically what went into that moment. Or I would just take those things and put them into all moments. It's clearly not just my kids, because I have my kids with me all the time. He would say, and it doesn't necessarily make me happy. But So what is it about those moments where I kind of go, man, it's like this is what I've been looking for my whole life, is to, is to, ful- is to feel fulfilled, to feel the sense of flourishing, fulfillment, happiness. So Hoffman is asking a really good question, isn't he? How can I be continually and substantially happy in life. Now, he has come to the conclusion, he says in this video, if you remember, he's come to the conclusion, he says, okay, happiness clearly is not, it's not just pleasure. And then he makes this, this great statement, he says, pleasure definitely isn't happiness. I kill pleasure. I take too much of it, and therefore I make it unpleasurable. And I do that to pleasure often. And he finishes by saying, there isn't any pleasure that I haven't actually made myself sick on. (laughs) It sounds a lot like this this sage who who we're looking at in this series, Solomon. Solomon was this this great king known as one of the wisest men who has ever lived. And the book of Ecclesiastes, believed to be written by this king, kind of further on in his Philip Seymour Hoffman era of life, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, let me, let me read for you a few words and listen to how Solomon is echoing Hoffman's heart here. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He's, he's asking the same question, what will really make me happy? But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter then, I said. But that's madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind still guided me with wisdom. He said, I got hammered, but sobriety came. And those aches, those questions, the nagging in my mind, it, it, didn't, it didn't anesthetize it. It was still there. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. In verse 10, he said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused no pleasure. Yet, he says, you know, when I tried it all, when I had just drunk in everything, taken everything, withheld nothing, then I realized everything was meaningless. And then he's this, this phrase that, that sticks with us and that sticks in our heart because we've all experienced it. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. 
So what we realize is whether you're a great American film actor and director or whether you're one of the great ancient kings or sages of the ancient world, there, there are plenty of people who, who have talent, who have intellect, who have charisma, who have credentials, who have beauty, and yet their lives just unravel. None of these things seem to have helped them out one little bit in figuring out something. How does life work? Right, because that's what we're trying to figure out. What's this? How does this whole life thing work? Do I understand it? Do I understand how it works and what to do in response to that? And yet we can also, also think of people who have none of these. They, have, they don't have the beauty. They don't have the credentials. They don't have success. They don't, and yet they seem to somehow flourish. It's like they do know how life works. What's the difference? It's the big word that's on your bulletin. Wisdom. The difference is wisdom. Gerhard von Rod was a late German uh, scholar. He's, he's probably written sort of the most quintessential text on, on Hebrew wisdom as the, the Old Testament concept of wisdom in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and some of the Psalms. And... Um, Gerhardt defines the, in the Hebrew mind, he says this, this is kind of what generally wisdom means as you look at the Proverbs and these other. It means being competent with regard to the realities of life. It means getting how life works and then how to respond in that. If you remember, if you were, if you were uh, in a weekend service that kind of kicked off this whole Wednesday night series, we looked at this parable of the shrewd manager, and we looked at this idea that Jesus, Jesus calls his followers in this sort of locker room conversation, he's going to send them out his inner circle, and he says, this is what's to characterize you, shrewdness, this idea of, un- you need to understand how relationships work. You need to understand how the world, you need to understand how your heart works. You need to understand how the world underneath the kingdom of God works and you need to apply the right pressure the right place the right time we talked all about this you need to be wise Jesus was telling his followers and so this definition of wisdom is understanding how life works think of it like this you and Sherlock Holmes walk into a room okay the room, there's been a crime in the room. It's, it's cluttered with debris. There's stuff all over the place. To you, to me, it looks like a blur. It's just junk. There's stuff all over. I don't. To Sherlock Holmes, it's not that way, is it? Sherlock Holmes looks at the room and he sees distinctions. He looks and he goes, no, 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 look at the cigarette, you know, uh, the ash on it is this long and not that long. So clearly the man wasn't sitting here the whole time smoking. He was over here. The, you know, the, the window's too high, so clearly the rock could not have gotten in and hit. He sees distinctions amidst, amidst all of the, the rubble. That's a picture of what biblical wisdom is. It's walking into the rubble of life, because let's be real, that's what it is. Life is like a puzzle. It's rubble, there's difficulty, and wisdom is seeing distinctions. What's really going on here? What's, what's underneath all of this? What's, I get hit by a tragedy. What's going on? How do I respond? I get, I get abused, or someone, someone treats me disrespectfully, or I, I sin, I err against someone else, and I go, what's going on with life? What's going on inside my heart? How should I respond that is what wisdom is. Wisdom is that quality which allows you to understand 
how life overall works and how you should respond. Here's what I'd like you to do. Uh, we're going to set a clock. It'll be on the sides running a countdown clock, three minutes. I want you to take three minutes. If you've got six people at a table, that's 30 seconds each. And I want you to turn and, and address this, this one question. Think about when you were a kid, or if you are a kid. But as a kid, what was it that made you happiest? What was it that when you were doing this, man, you look back and you're like, that, was, that, that brought me joy. Okay? What was it that as a kid you would say, that really, man, I loved that. That brought me joy. Okay? Three minutes and then we'll pull back together. Okay. Okay, let me 
let me hear you say, say a couple of the things. I mean, if it's a big story, you don't have to say it. But like, if it's a one-word answer, say a couple of them out. I'll say it. I'll repeat it. And if it resonates with you, you can respond with like an applause or a hip, hip, hooray or a hoop or something like that. What'd you say? Firing up. Okay, cheerleading and firing up a crowd. Anyone? A couple people? Okay. Okay, not too many cheerleaders in the room. Joel, not you? Okay. Okay. What else? <laughs> what else? Watermelon with the family at summertime. Yeah? Some? Okay. You need more watermelon. Just summertime in general. Yeah, we're and it's gone. Boo. It's leaving us. <laughs> Visiting cousins like extended family. Yeah. <laughs> Say that again. Grandma coming to stay with you. Yeah, nothing like grandma coming to stay with you. What's that? Sandlot baseball. All right, we're getting to the heart of what really makes you happy here. This is better. Okay, not grandma. Say that again. Going fishing. Fishing. Any fishermen in here? Okay. L- lying about your catches? A little? Oh, no. What else? Hanging out with friends. Friendships. Okay. Say that again. Okay, wanting five more minutes past when the street lights come on. More time in the day. Yeah. Summer days. That's what it's like, right? Isn't it, isn't it kind of fun to think about like what, what, what really was like, man, that was a happy moment. That brought me joy. There was something fulfilling about that. And yet sometimes we also like we go back to those moments and like you ever try to recreate a moment? You're like, man, it's going to feel so good. And it just it, it doesn't do the same thing. I think it's kind of what Hoffman was talking about. There are those moments and it's like we we know them when we're there or sometimes we only know them afterwards. And it's like you can't orchestrate it. There's something unique about that. Proverbs chapter 3, read with me a couple passages here. This, this is a passage which speaks of the relationship of that, like enjoyment, beauty, fun, happiness, and wisdom. Because it says there's, there's a direct correlation that, that we oftentimes miss. Proverbs chapter 3, and I'm going to read just a few verses in chapter 3. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will, you know, here's, here's a flourishing phrase. They will prolong your life many years, bring you peace, prosperity, watermelon, late nights, okay? Verse 13, and this is a key word. This is a word that appears throughout the Bible. Jesus capitalizes on it more than anyone else. Blessed. Some of our translations translate it happy, fulfilled, whole. Blessed are those who find wisdom. Now that's key. That's going to explain everything we're talking about tonight. Those who gain understanding, verse 17, speaking of wisdom like a woman, says, Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold fast will be happy, will be blessed. Verse 21, My son, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will, and here's another one of those big life words, they will be life to you. An ornament 
to grace your neck. Here's the big idea tonight. If you, if you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with this. Write this down. Happiness is always and only a byproduct of something more than happiness. Happiness is always and only a byproduct of something more than happiness. So you never see in Scripture, blessed are those who seek blessedness. Or blessed are those who seek happiness. No, never. It always says, blessed are those who seek something more than blessedness. Who seek something more than happiness. But see... If we're honest, we all admit, we, we like naturally long and we hunger. I mean, endorphins run through our body when we even start talking about, when you start talking about watermelon and late nights and grandma coming over and all of a sudden, endorphins, our body responds and reacts to that. It's interesting, there's a journal in the, um, uh, or an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which cited that people in the 20th century alone, as they've studied them, People in each successive generation were three times more likely to experience depression than the previous generation alone. In fact, mental health experts tell us that the, the onset, the, the average age at which depression is uh, experienced in people's lives, in, in the year 1960, the average age was 29 and a half. Today, the average onset age for depression is 14 and a half. No 14-year-old should have to battle that. Something's wrong. We're richer, we're more educated, but we're just richer, more, edu- more educated, sad people. So what's the way out? We want to be happy, right? I mean, we know this deep at our core, whether you're Philip Seymour Hoffman or Solomon or, or any one of us, we desperately want to be happy deep at our core but we can't seem to figure out like both of these guys it seems to be kind of a chasing of the wind and this brings us to something here that i want to talk about something we'll call the happiness paradox the happiness paradox the oh that's an a just missed the leg. Um, this is the big idea. I will never be happy if my ultimate goal in life is to be happy. You will never be happy if your ultimate goal, your first goal, is to be happy. Happy is one of those things that only comes as a byproduct when we're pursuing something else, something higher, something bigger. And so there is, it turns out, actually something that is far more important, more significant in life than pursuing the happy life. And let me just kind of contrast these two. There's the happy life and then there's the meaningful The meaningful life. And so I want to look at, okay, what's the relationship between these two? To pursue the happy life, to pursue the the meaningful life. There's a difference between the pursuit of meaning and the pursuit of happy. 
And it turns out that happiness without meaning actually becomes very, very shallow, very self-centered. And that's why ultimately pursuing happiness, it just doesn't pay off. It ends in, in ruin, life ruin. Because, see, we think, well, I'll be happy when, when all of my needs finally get met. Uh, I'll be happy when finally everything goes well. I'll be happy when finally all my desires are satisfied, when, when I can uh, finally avoid pain, when finally everyone likes me. Notice what the focus is. The happy life, the focus is circumstances, right? Now, I'm going to use the word happy, and, and I'm okay with it. I'm not trashing the word, but think about this. The word itself comes from an ancient word where the root of it is hap, like happenstance, meaning circumstances. Happiness, the happy life, has its focus on the circumstances in my life. If they're all set up, then all is well with my soul. If everything is going smoothly, all is well with my soul. People don't have a job and they think, I'll be happy when, when I finally get a job. And then they get a job and there's pressure that comes along with it. There's stress, there's challenges, and they think, I will finally be happy when I can retire from my job, right? It's really interesting. Studies, <clears throat> studies on this. People who retire, um, what typically happens it, it, uh, to happiness is happiness goes up temporarily when a person retires, but meaning, meaning actually goes down because they don't have a place to give they lose that sense of I'm doing something. With, even though the stress is gone and all these other pieces are gone, happiness immediately goes up, but meaning goes down. And what you'll find is happiness always chases meaning. Slowly, but happiness always pursues meaning. People get a large chunk of money, and they think, if, if, I, just, if I just had more money, I would be happier. They get it, they spend it on themselves, more stuff, bigger houses, new car, nice trip. Happiness goes up for a moment. Meaning goes down. There was a study in the Journal of Socioeconomics, and they found that changes in people's income. Now, this is huge, right? That's, that's what we live for. Boy, we want that. We focus on that a lot. Changes in people's income monetarily, you know, the levels, um, actually had very little to do with their happiness reporting in life. However, and again, this is all secular data here, an increase in the level of relational involvement in your life. This is, this is you know, deepening of, of connection, relationships. According to the study, those sort of relationships were worth more than $100,000 a year in life satisfaction. Okay? Here, now, here's how you can apply this. After service tonight, come give me $80,000. I will be your friend, and you can keep twenty. Okay? Just think about it. Just think about it. See, people also think about other things. Kids. People who don't have kids. Really interesting thing on this one. People who don't have kids, they think, if I would be so much happier if, if my house just had children in it. If we, if we could get kids in our home, I would be happy. And then they get kids and they think, I will be happy when the kids leave the house, right? In 18 or 20 or 30 or... 40 years, however many that might be. But people kind of have this fantasy about various things, whether it be kids or anything else. These, we imagine these kind of magic moments, you know, 
chubby little arms reaching for us and just snuggling and holding and, and being adored you know, by kids. And, and we think of our brilliant children making straight A's and earning 4.0s and starring in the school play and you know, kicking the winning soccer goal. It's so interesting. If you look up the partial phrase on Google, if you go to Google and you type in the Google search bar this phrase, is my two-year-old... If you type that, that phrase in there, do you know what the number one word that comes next? Gifted. Number one. Is my two-year-old gifted? That is the number one word that pops up. Why is that? Because, see, if my two-year-old is gifted, then I'm happy. Because it's a confirmation that I have good genes, and I have passed down those good genes, and everyone will know when it reflects about what a great parent I am, and what a great person I am, and it was just wrapped up in me, and I finally was able to get it out into my child. People have all these ideas, I will be happy when, right? Because it's circumstances. It's all based on circumstances. Then... They actually do get kids, and there are dirty diapers, and there's bottles, and crying, and temper problems, and exhaustion, and sleep deprivation. And having children is costly, and it is tiring, and it is stressful, and it is draining. And interestingly, if marital satisfaction, do you know when it go, that actually goes down? I remember Jim Clock telling me this, uh, saying that marital satisfaction actually goes down when a couple has children, and, it, and then it goes back up once the children leave the house. How many of you are surprised that they didn't choose me to do, like, infant dedication around here? I did it once, and, and they wouldn't let me do it again. See, happy slowly follows meaning, but meaning never follows happy. When people get to the end of their lives, this is always the case, it turns out that what matters was meaning. That's actually what makes them say, I am happy, I am fulfilled, is that they had meaning. God has made us so that we actually grow in sustainable joy when there is increased meaning in our lives. In other words, if you aim at meaning, you will tend to get happiness thrown in. It will come along slowly. If you aim at happiness, you'll get neither happiness nor meaning. That's this paradox. That's the happiness paradox. Philip Seymour Hoffman's video, I love this phrase that he says. He says, there's a period of time in my life where I kind of looked back. Remember this? And he says, I kind of looked back over my life and thought, was I happy or was I just unaware? What he means is, see, he's hitting a clue. He's realizing his happiness paradox just a little bit. What he's saying is, I've been pursuing happiness through my career and through success and, and fame for so many years. The only time I, that I don't remember feeling dissatisfied is when I wasn't trying to be happy. And so it's almost like I wasn't even aware of it, but I was happy. Because, see, I wasn't, pursue, that, that's what he's, I wasn't pursuing happiness. And so it's only when I look back, I go, man, that was real. I was happy there. That really was a good time because I wasn't trying to manufacture it. That wasn't my end in and of itself. Now, see, even, even very religious people, I think, can fall into this trap. Even if you're a very religious person and you try to be a moral person, ask yourself this. Why is it that sometimes you cheat? Why is it that, that, that sometimes you lie? 
or sometimes you break a promise. So you have standards, but then sometimes you break them. Why is that? Oh, here's why I think. Because the normal condition of our heart is to say this. This is what the Bible tells us. The normal condition of the heart is to say, I believe in principles. Hon- yeah, honestly, hugely important. I think it is very important. Um, it's a good idea. I believe in purity. I believe in integrity. They're all very good. But sometimes you have to make an exception. See, when we do that, here's what we're revealing. When I do that, and I do that, and you do that, we all do that. When I you sort of think, well, I have to make an exception in this case... What I'm doing is I'm revealing that really there's one principle that is over all the principles of morality and goodness and, you know, shouldn't cheat and all this stuff. And that's a principle that I ought to be happy. That, that reveals that when I do that. I have got to be happy. Oh, I believe in telling the truth, but not if I'm going to lose my job over it. Why? Because that would make me unhappy. Well, I believe, in, I believe in purity, but not if I'm going to lose that guy or not if I'm going to lose that, that girl over it because I've got to be happy. And if we're honest with ourselves, what, what we really believe is our top priority oftentimes is seeking my happiness. Everything else comes in second. God's righteousness is great, absolutely, but my, my happiness needs to come first. See, the Bible says this is the definition of sin. This is the very definition of sin. And that the, there's, this, there's this fundamental bent of the heart. There's a fundamental bias inside me that I'm not even aware of much of the time in my soul. And see, if I continue to live my life in that state, I will never find happiness. Because Jesus says, if you seek happiness, it will elude you. You will never find it. If you make happiness in your marriage your number one priority, if, you, if, if that is what is ultimate in your life and what you're really searching for more than anything else, you will never have it. If you make your happiness in a, in a successful career and doing what you want and man, feeling passion and doing such a good thing, if you make that your ultimate goal, you will never get it. The anxiety will kill you. The pressure will absolutely crush you. Again, think of that awesome moment you had. You ever have those moments where you just say, man, I want to make this moment last forever. Go ahead and try it. <laughs> you will pollute that moment far more than if you would have not tried to make that moment ultimate. And we've all experienced that. If, if we want to reach our, our joy potential as followers of Jesus, as, as the church or as individuals, we're going to have to decide... And orient our lives around either the happy life or the meaningful life. I've got to decide which one I'm going to orient and orbit around because I only have those two choices. Now contrast the, the, the happiness search in life, where that's all in circumstances, to, to the meaningful life which finds delight in a deeper place. Let me read for you Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 used, starts with the same word, happy, blessed. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, blessed, happy is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, um, I'm sorry, or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight 
That's that happiness word. What do they really delight in? But their delight is in the law of the Lord. And who meditates on his law day and night. That person, now here's the picture. This is, this is contrasting the meaningful life. Here's, here's what your life could, if you think about it, in a really concrete way look like. This person, it's like a tree. And that tree is planted by, by a stream of water. And that tree yields its fruit in season, and the leaf doesn't wither, meaning death does not come to it. Whatever it does, there is a flourishing to it. Now, notice, notice one thing about this. Notice, notice that the tree experiences seasons, right? Drought comes. Scorching heat comes. Frigid, cold temperatures come. So why doesn't it give up? Why doesn't it end in absolute despair? Because the root is plunged down into the persons of God. There's a, it's something that can't be seen, though. It's interior. It's inside. It's what the life of the tree is oriented around. Not the circumstances. Not is it, is it nice out, you know, what's going on. The exact same challenges and difficulties that hit the person who's not rooted in God will hit you if you are rooted in God. He doesn't promise to take anything away. He says, but there will be a vibrancy there will be something which will allow you to stay afloat, to not be crushed. Paul constantly says, man, we're, we're like broken down, we're hit, but we don't give up. There's some sort of a resiliency because there's life in you that's not yours. It's a foreign life. It's an alien life. It's a foreign power. Scripture calls it the Spirit of God, and that gives you that resiliency in your life. So is God committed to your happiness? Absolutely. And yet, if you come to God to make you happy, you've come to the wrong God. You're, you're not really coming to the right God. If you're ultimately coming to him to say, I want you to fix my circumstances. I want you to give me a good marriage. I want to be successful in business. I want to... You're coming to the wrong God. That's an idol. That's not the real God. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, all... I'll try this Christianity thing if I can see how he would help me out with my goals and to accomplish you know, the things that I want to do. You're not coming to God. You're coming to a butler. That's not God. The only way to come to the real God, rightly, is to come without conditions, is to forget happiness. And you say, God, you owe me nothing. I owe you everything. So here's the question. How, how are you, and think about this, this week, think, how am I approaching God? And, my, and here's the test. Here's the test. Of, this will kind of reveal it. The only way to know the basis on which you're coming to God is by seeing how do you respond when bad seasons come. When, when the scorching heat, when there's drought, when it's frigid temperatures, when there's wind that you, you just can't think you can stand. How do you respond? And that will let you know, it will let me know, on what basis have I really come to God? Was it really this thing? Am I really just looking for my happiness and I think God can help me get it done? Maybe so. Or am I really coming to him because I think he is the very essence of meaning? And I, I, I don't seek happiness in God, but again, it's the paradox. I get it as a byproduct because I get the real God, who is truth, goodness, and beauty. He is all the things that I want and long for. The happy life is rooted in where you are 
circumstantially. Maybe finances or your vocation, your job, or physically. The meaningful life is rooted in where you are spiritually with God. It's really interesting. Reading, I was reading this week the New Testament uh, letter that Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, the book of Philippians. And the words for joy, rejoice, rejoicing, and all that, the words for joy are, are used 14 times in these four little chapters of this book of Philippians, more than anywhere else in Paul's writing. He uses this word joy. And he's getting at this idea, this sense of like, man, I have this stability. I have this flourishing. This, this, there's happiness that comes as a result of pursuing meaning. And what's amazing is that Paul actually wrote it in prison. This is what we call one of the prison epistles. This is a letter that he's writing when he is in, change, in chains. He's in chains. He's in disgrace. He's in big trouble. And yet he can't stop talking about Joy. He can't stop talking about what Philip Seymour Hoffman was saying. That's what I've been after my whole life and all the experiences of kids and beauty and success. I've been after something. I've been after happiness. And Paul's just like, it's coming out. He just like can't even help it. It's just, it's, it's a part of his essence. It's a part of who he is. But his circumstances stink. He's in a horrible place. And at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says, he makes this cool statement. He says, he's writing to the saints, to the church, these people, he says, who are in Christ. There's the N word. In Christ Jesus at Philippi. In other words, in Philippi geographically, but in Christ spiritually. And what he's saying is, you might be in rotten circumstances, you might be in awful circumstances, but I'm writing to you in Christ Jesus. Circumstantially, you're there. Your happiness level might be like way low, but your meaning level is way high because you are rooted. You're like that tree that's rooted down deeply into Christ. In other words, he's saying you're not buying into the pursuit of the happy life, but you're orienting yourself around the meaningful life by coming to God and saying this. God, I make no claims. You owe me nothing. I owe you everything. And you've given me everything in Christ Jesus. And so I am pursuing the meaningful life. And what that, what that looks like, how that's played out, is I'm pursuing your kingdom. Your rule, your kingdom, rather than my tiny little kingdom. Because I have a kingdom, you have a kingdom. But I'm pursuing your big grand kingdom rather than my little kingdom. Something bigger than myself. And in losing their lives for Christ, they find their true lives. Remember Jesus said that? If anyone who would come after me, he says, you know, take up your cross. That's that picture of, you know, death, the self thing. And then this great happiness paradox. He says, anyone who loses their, their life, for, he doesn't mean physically, loses their, their identity, their, their little kingdom. If you lose your little kingdom, he says, for my sake, you get a bigger kingdom. And you get your true self. You get happiness. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I pray for every single one of us, God, in this room. God, there, there are people here who are just filled with gratitude. Wonderful things are going on. Great relationships. Great satisfaction in their work. Meaningful friendships. Wonderful opportunities 
just lying before them that they're, that they're biting into, they're, they're running toward. And God, we don't want to take that for granted. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And God, then there are also people facing really big difficulties. Death, loss of health, just problems, pain. God, we have one hope in that moment, and that's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, who for, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That was meaningful. And he scorned its shame for the joy set before him. That's us. God, would you bring joy into every heart here, into every circumstance here? Would you bring a joy that, that, that goes beyond the circumstances, goes beyond the stuff that, that we're going to walk right back into when we leave this room, the difficulties, the brokenness? Would you bring a joy that death itself cannot defeat? Because we face death every day. And right now, God is sort of like putting a stake in the ground. We proclaim our joy in you, God. Regardless of circumstances, we offer you our hearts. We offer you our worship. We offer you gratitude. We offer you our lives and our eternities. And we do this in the name of the joy bringer. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, our, our prayer team is going to be up front. We, if, if you're just at a place in your life where you would like prayer, man, it's an honor. It's an honor just to be able to enter into your lives and pray in that way. Feel free to um, grab coffee, cookies, or anything on your way out. For those of you who have come prepared uh, for, for tithes and offering, we do that every night at the back. And so we'll have our offering plates in the back. You can just drop those in there as you go, okay? Have a wonderful week. Have a blessed, meaningful week. I love you guys.